0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Chapel Hill, North Carolina writer, radio announcer, and educator, the great Larry Thomas. Over his long and esteemed career, he has worked at seven radio stations, and his journalistic work has appeared in Downbeat Magazine and the New York Times Magazine, along with many others. His busy and colorful career has spanned close to three decades, and he is the author of The Lady Who Shot Lee Morgan, an article that included an exclusive interview with North Carolina native Helen Morgan, who killed the 33-year-old jazz trumpeter at Slugs in New York City. It was turned into a documentary, and it's a great one. He is full of wisdom, stories, and truth, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends.
1: So again, Larry, thank you for taking a minute out from Neon Jazz to talk about your life and, and music and just everything that we're going to dive into. I appreciate it, man.
2: Well, you're welcome.
1: I'm honored. So, awesome. Let, let's dive right in here and start at the alpha of your life. Talk to me about your childhood, where you were born and raised, and kind of how you got into jazz.
2: I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it's a seaport city. But I was blessed to have a father who was a Count Basie theme, Man, he loved Count Basie. He was a mailman. He would come home from work, and he would put on some. Well, the first thing he'd do is fix himself a drink, of course, and he'd sit down and listen to to this music. We we didn't like it at the time because you know we were into like Motown and that kind of thing. But later on, it finally kicked in. Yeah, he loved Count Basie. He, he had a friend who used to walk around with a beret on, who was a Miles Davis. Uh, disciple and he had a trumpet. He was so my my father was the one who exposed me to it I think that's very important if you're not exposed to this Music, then you could forget it. It'll take a while uh, Before you get it, you know, but I was able to finally understand what was happening when I was um When I was in grad school finally kicked in
1: so when you were growing up What was your dream when you got older? What did you want to do with your life?
2: I want to be a writer yeah, well, from, from, from from all, I I think it goes back maybe to the third, third grade or fourth grade. I really wanted to be a writer. As a matter of fact, I used to come up with a little newspaper. When I was in the, I could think a ninth or the tenth grade, I had a little newspaper for our class. So I was always into writing, man. I always wanted to be a writer.
1: Well, Dream realized with that, and then also... When did you get the bug to want to be a, a jazz DJ? When did that happen?
2: Well, what happened was when I was in grad school. It actually started when I was in grad school. I came down with an ulcer. After I recovered, my doctor recommended that I do something, you know, kind of as a stress buster. And I st- I started doing two things, which I'm still doing. Today I started jogging. I'm a daily jogger. And I uh, decided to go over to the student-operated radio station here in Chapel Hill, and, you know, to try to be a radio announcer. I was always fascinated by it. You know, I was over... I'm, uh, matter of fact, when I was growing up, I was the guy in the neighborhood who everybody came over to my crib to listen to the new music. It always had the new music. So I've, I've always been into music. That's never been a problem for me. But I, I was a little bit hesitant about being a radio announcer. But when I went over there and I auditioned at the student-run radio station, WXYC is the name of it station. And the guy said, man, you have a radio voice. Of course, I didn't know what that meant. So that I I started doing a shift, man. I did jazz on Sundays from 12 to 4. And I, I kind of split it up because I met some guys from, from Trinidad who were part of a reggae band here in Chapel Hill. And they said, well, why don't you do some uh, reggae? So I, I did from 12 to 2, I did jazz. By the way, I don't call it jazz. I call it American classical music. Uh, Jazz is short for jackass. And then from two to four, I did Caribbean music. So I was later able, uh, about a year or so after that, uh, they started a radio station here over in Durham. Duke University owned the station, they did Western classical music, European classical music in the daytime, and they did American classical music, jazz music at night. And my first shift as as getting paid (laughs) was from 2.30 a.m. until 6 a.m at WDBS. I've been on the roll ever since now. That's all I've ever done.
1: What do you love the most about it?
2: Uh, communicating with people in, in your own way. Because I'll tell you this story. What happened was, I'd been at it for a long time, well, long enough, that my my voice was a person, uh was a voice that people were, you know, they had heard and they were used to listening to it. Uh, I was at a concert once, and I emceed the concert, and this, this elderly couple came up to me, and, and they said, you don't know us, the guy said, "You don't know us, but we know you." And said, "We listen to you all the time." And he said, "We especially, my wife especially, I especially like when you come on because my wife get amorous." <laughs> so, so, I, so I said, "Okay, you know." And radio, you never know who's listening, man. It could be the president of the United States. Yeah. So, so you just have to be, you know. And you know what I found out too, my man. I found out that people they want to know who was on the record especially people who listen to to jazz music. They want to know who was on the record, where it was recorded, the name of the album. And sometimes they want to know, you know, you might throw something in that they never knew. Uh, I I talk about people who were born here in North Carolina. I might say John Coltane was a native of Hamlet, North Carolina, and keep moving. But they just want to hear the music, but they like information. But they want to know the weather, and they want to know what time it is. And that's what they want to do. You know, you know and, and if you can stay with that and a lot of people get on the air and they'll start t- talk, talking about stuff that you know is unnecessary but I found out that people really want to want those things man they want to know the time and they want to know the weather, they want to know who's on the record so that's what I do I, I come in and get out of there they want to yeah. hear the music they don't want to hear you talking. Right. who cares yeah. about your personal problems
1: <laughs> you know right? who cares you know
2: who cares if you had a flat tire on the way to the gig you know so what I mean yeah. It has nothing to do with the music.
1: Yeah, my dad used to always tell me, no one wants to hear about your problems, man. That's all there is to it.
2: Just just
1: lay, lay it on good. So the one thing that, you know, I've always seen you on my radar and know about the good work that you do, but the one thing that I didn't expect when I watched the Lee Morgan documentary is that you fetched that final interview with Helen, and it was fascinating. The way they presented it in the film The way you had it on the audio tape, the way that the meter and the rhyme and the way that she orchestrated that story was fascinating. And and, and as I got to the end of that film, I didn't realize the surprise that was going to happen to me, which was a level of cathartic. Uh, revelation that came into it, which was these musicians that you expected to have a bitter chip on their shoulders after all of these years of losing their friend realized this was a very human situation, a very heat of the moment, and you had that opportunity to capture that. What was that like?
2: Oh, that's a very good question, because I got to meet uh, Benny Malpin, and I got to meet Billy Harper and all these people. I've been on a LA, really, for a long time, so... Larry and I are cool. I found out that these cats came up to me, man. they said, well you know after-, after seeing that movie, it changed their whole perspective, and it was it was like closure for them you know um Billy Hopper said it, and uh Benny Moppin said the same thing Benny came out here, Benny and I did a book signing, a, a viewing of a screening of the movie, and he he's been out here he came i think he well, I think it was last year. So these cats got some closure from it because I, you know, when I wrote that article, you know, you know the history. I wrote an article first. Yeah. It came out in in twenty oh seven, and that's how Castor read the article. Castor Cullen read the article because it went from here to Thailand. It was it's been translated into several different languages. Some kind of way he got my uh, email address and he emailed me and called me. He's actually stayed here in my apartment. Here. he did the filming in North Carolina. He stayed here in my apartment. He came over twice. Yeah, fascinating story. Yeah.
1: Totally. Well, what did you learn from this entire experience about the about, on a human level? I mean, we know we we lost the musician. We know that there was remorse. But did you find out something about human redemption in this story?
2: Yeah, I guess so. I guess you could. You know, I guess you could say. Oh, there's so many dimensions to this story. Though it's, it has several different layers. All over the place. And You know what I found out? I found out that, um, I'm a historian. I've been trained as a historian. And I found out that, that what I didn't find out, I didn't think that's already just or just substantiated what I've already thought, was that there's three sides to every story. There's Helen's side, his side, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically of this story. There's one side, another side, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, somewhere in the middle. That's, that's, that really made me realize after Coke, after, you know, being in this whole experience is that there's several. there could be several sides. Because I've done book signings, uh, an interesting book signing I did at the Monterey Jazz Festival in Monterey, and there were these women in there. They kept, you know, they kept talking to me about, well, why would he cross her, why would she just, you know, and so I found out that the women were really the ones that were aggravated by this whole story. Not the main ones, but they were in the mix. Why would he cross or they wanted to know that? And one of the other dimensions was these sisters came up to me and they were talking about, well, what is it all these black musicians messing with these white women? <laughs> you know, and I, I said, well, I, I don't know but the, you know, some of the cats who I've talked to, they said, well, the sisters, they want to get mad all the time and I, they want to know when is the money coming in and this kind of thing. He said, but the, the white girls, they more... Understanding of artists, the sisters couldn't dig that, but that's just a dimension. That's another, I mean, There's a lot of dimensions to this joke, but I just, yep. you know, just, I could go on and on. I, especially with Mrs. Morgan, because when I, she was a student of mine. Yeah. She was just a student of mine. She would sit in the front row. She never said a lot, but when she said something, it was, you know, it was. She was, she was asking a good question, but she knew all about this stuff before a lot of those students who were in my class, but she, she was interesting because when I went to interview her, she was by herself and it just seemed like something she had wanted to get off wanted to get off her chest and she just she just started talking, man. Started rattling. Put the paper card in front of her, let her talk, you
1: know? Well, you know, the interesting thing is there has to be a part of her that knew and realized her mortality and, and didn't want this not to be told. You know, it it seems to me that you had a part two that you were going to get to and at right. least you got this part down in, in, right. in that cathartic way. You know, the other thing that that strikes me is very interesting, and I, coming from a personal perspective of doing jazz radio and interviewing a lot of musicians, uh. I was talking to Dick Conte uh, about three or four weeks ago, and he was talking about he just happened to be in front of that nightclub, Birdland, when Miles Davis was attacked in that infamous attack, and he was explaining the whole story to me. And it's like the three sides to every story that you're talking about. He opens up the papers, doesn't realize it's that big of a story, and all of a sudden, boom, it's front page. It kind of lays a foundation for Miles Davis and his life. And, and I'm wondering this from you. The one thing I don't think that the casual jazz listener or people out there realize when you're doing this and you're interviewing people You run into things and you start connecting dots that maybe people don't realize. What dots have you connected over the years in jazz that made you really realize something about it that that maybe others don't about how musicians roll and how this whole nebulae of jazz, the universe of jazz works?
2: Well, first of all, they're my heroes. I look up to them because they were trendsetters and they just changed the whole groove, especially the cats who play bebop. You know, there's a story about how Billy Eckstein and those guys went out to Kansas City, and they just walked through the front door. They weren't going through the back door anymore. But I found out basically that it's the reflection of the African-American experience, and that's that's all it is. It's a musical reaction. It's, It's urban music, first of all. It's music that you gather from being in the city. That's why if you notice a lot of the music in the thirties and the forties sounds like a choo choo train, you know, if you listen to it. I mean the fast moving stuff. But I I really realize what this really what it really is a reflection of the African American experience. You know, take a tune it, it take a tune like go Harlem, go Harlem. What they're trying to do is instill some kind of pride in a person. You understand know what I'm saying? Because yeah. um you have to look at the time also in the twenties and the thirties you know, people today don't realize that, those are terrible times, man. They're horrible times. You know, so they had to create something that kind of gave them some kind of joy in, in their existence because their existence is a cruel existence, man. So this music basically reflects. I mean, it's been denigrated. I, I've written. Uh, I have a uh, essay called "What What Is Jazz." Jazz is a term that was created by those who wanted to deny it. it It's dignity, you know, oh, that's nothing but jazz, you know, that's jackass music, you know, and they they first called it nigger music, and then they called it jackass music, then they called it jungle music, you know, and then finally they called it jazz, J-A-S-S, the original Dixieland jazz band. It's the most sophisticated music in the world, Joe. Yeah, I agree. Created by the most sophisticated people in the world. They just need a little help. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Understanding hey, their hey, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I yeah. agree. And the one thing I think I've noticed, the higher you go up the food chain of these cats, from, you know, Jimmy Heath to Sonny Rollins to right. the upper echelon, they're more they're, they're the most humble people on the planet. They're right. protecting this torch. And I think that's what I want you to kind of comment on a little bit. What I've noticed in eight years and almost six 600 interviews is that at the end of the day, these musicians are humble. They don't squabble about money. Yeah, it would be right. nice to have a little bit more, but they do this because it's love. They love this music. They're protecting right. it. And all of these kids that are going into college and learning the craft and going out and doing it know what they're getting into, and it's not diminished the numbers. So at the end of the day, it, it, there, there's, a, there's a deep, warm love that's in the middle of this thing that you call American classical music. What do you think about oh, yeah. that?
2: Oh, I, I totally agree with what you said. Now, what you just expound was, was uh, right on, on the money. You, you're correct. Uh, like I said before, it, it's, it's a reflection of the African-American experience. It's a creation. These cats created this. You know I mean? It's the, I mean, it's the, from, uh, I look at Jimmy Heath. Jimmy Heath was actually uh, went to high school in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina. His father was born in Wilmington. South Carolina, and they but they moved to Philly, so I've got to know Jimmy well. And he he when I first met him, he said, "Well, I'm not a star, man." He said, "Stars are in the sky, you know." He said, "You just have to be humble about this." And once you want to run into the ones who are humble, those are the real ones. I mean, I had a chance to hang out with Dexter Gordon. I mean, that was a thrill. <laughs> Very basic kind of cat. I pick up on that. I try to be humble about what I do. You know. Yeah. So you have to be a star. You don't have to, it's not an ego kind of thing, you know, not an ego kind of thing. If if you get into egos, man, and that destroys the whole vibe. It's not that kind of fun. Without a
1: doubt. Without a doubt. You know, the, the one thing that's great about you being a broadcaster and a writer is that this can go on as long as you want. This isn't one of those things where you hit an age and you're like, yeah, I'm out, I retire or whatever. So my question to you is this, what do you want to do? As you continue to move forward, are there things that you want to do? Or are you going to do this until the very, very end? What's your What's your plan from here on out? <laughs>
2: yeah, I plan to die with my boots on, my man.
1: <laughs> you
2: dig what I'm saying? So I don't, I do. you know, I don't like my key is I, I'm, just, I'm only thing I've only tried to be, Joe, was a gentleman, a scholar, and a servant of the people. You know, so this is what I do. This is what I, who I am. A lot of people say that I'm arrogant, but I'm, I don't think I'm arrogant. I'm just putting it out there. You know. And all of this stuff is well documented. You dig what I'm saying? I'm reading the sophisticated John, this new book by Dexter's wife. I it's think it's a fascinating book. It it deals with three sides to every story. Yeah. You dig? It, it, it's there's yeah. three sides to every story. You know, Mrs. Morgan told me that when she shot Lee, she ran over to him and she said that Lee said, Hell on I know he didn't mean to do that. Now this guy's bleeding. He's laying there on the ground but um, Paul West, the bass player, who was sitting at the table a few yards away, said he heard it said, say to uh, he heard, uh, Lisa, I heard Helen said, why did you make me do this? You know what I'm saying? And then Billy Hart did an interview. And in the interview, first of all, Billy Hart said, well, I wasn't there, first of all, but this is what I heard. He heard that Lee said, laying on the ground, get away from me, you dirty bitch. So these are three different stories.
1: Totally. Yeah, without a doubt.
2: I thought it would be a fascinating life, but just like I said, man, it's it's all that's all it is, my man. Yeah. All it is I as agree. a historian is a reflection of the African-American experience, a musical reflection. Yeah. And that's all. It is. It's not to be exploited to make money off of. It's not to make heroes out of. They're not heroes. They're just moving on to tradition. <laughs> yeah. That's all, that's all that's all anybody could ever do, you know, I like to have my own radio station. I've been I managed two radio stations. You know, I'd like to open up a jazz club, a cultural center, all those kind of things. But that ain't what I do, Jack. Yeah, that's
1: <laughs> yeah, not my you. gig. You know, that's
2: for somebody else's gig. You know, I've been involved in several ventures like that. You know, but that's not my, my gig. Is to you know serve the people and put it out there. Put try to put. The message out there that this is the most sophisticated music in the world—that's my gig.
1: Beautiful. So the one thing that's very good—you're a very well-educated man—and you educate a lot of people. Okay. Oh, we, yeah, we learn so much from seeing live gigs. When you were growing up in those formative years, what jazz shows did you see that really left an impact on you? Well,
2: there weren't a lot on TV when I was growing up as a kid, you know. But yeah. I tell you one thing: my dad, when my dad saw. And once in a while you might see Count Basie and Duke Ellington on, on TV, but when my dad saw somebody like uh, Basie or Joe Williams or even the modern MJQ or something like that, he would always just say something. He would say, I've seen them before. You know, like, yeah, well, I've seen think before. And my dad went to New York. They went up north. They went to New York, and his other brother went to Chicago. And he was, he was the baby of the family. He was determined. He said, I'm not going. He said, I'm going to stay right here. And so when he would say these things, I said, well, where did you see them at? I said, you, you didn't go to New York. How did you see these big bands? He said, I saw them right around the corner at a place called The Barn. And I found out later on doing research that these musicians were traveling south. Dexter told me one time that he played at the tobacco Barn in North Carolina. So there was a club right around the corner from my neighborhood called the Barn, B-A-R-N. All these people came there: wow. Cap Calloway, uh, Lionel Hampton, Louis Armstrong. They would they would go to, to, to the South, man, and wow. turn around and come go back to New York. And I didn't know he performed in the Barn after he graduated through it in Wilmington. the fascinating story, man. You can go to every little town. you you find a jazz set, man. Absolutely. This music ain't dead, bro.
1: <laughs> no. No, I agree. I agree. This music so, is not dead. That's a,
2: a wishful thinking. They wish it would go away.
1: It's alive and well, you know? for sure. Oh, yeah. come on, bro. So everything's going to come down to this to kind of get to the essence of who you are. And I want to ask you this. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your listeners, your friends but you know yourself best. Tell me, who do you think you are?
2: Uh, I'm just a cat who's having fun. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Really. I'm just, you know, like I said, all I'm trying to be is a gentleman, a scholar, and a scholar. I, well, I guess I'm a scholar. I like to read. I'm reading about three books now. And I, you know, I just want to be a communicator, to communicate to people. You know, um, And I think when you read, it opens up all kinds of uh, horizons you know, you're, you're able to, to rise above uh, what's really happening. You know, I look at what's happening today and everybody's freaking out. You know, I was blessed to be able to get a degree in history and also blessed to almost get a master's in journalism. And so there are two different things. Journalism is what you're keeping up with the, what's happening daily, but history is when you take all these daily events, all these current events, and kind of crystallize them and analyze them and come up with, Maybe a paragraph or, or two sentences. You dig what I'm saying? So yeah, totally. Um, I'm just—I uh, guess I'm—I'm uh, I'm just a scholar, man. Basically, I, like it. I try to be. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm trying to be, man. You know, that's cool. Right. I live a very simple life, man. I'm a vegetarian. I jog. I—I I don't need a whole lot. Me.
1: Well, you're probably going to be around for a long time, then.
2: Yeah, so, I work, work—I on it. <laughs>
1: yeah, I hear I'm you. Working on
2: it, man. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Larry, thank you Look for what fine, you
1: man. do for
2: jazz. That's thank you, bad. man. Thanks for the compliment. I really don't know what's happening now in my life in terms of uh, how much I'm putting out there and people who are receiving it. You know, I, I don't. I'm not aware of that until I hear from people like you. In other right folks, on. I've been hearing from a lot of folks. Really, that's good, man.
0: Yeah, Very man. Cool. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and broadcasters and writers in North Carolina, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Larry for his class and his dedication to jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, visit the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.